Investigators must have had a hell of a time solving crimes in the 1800s. Not only were there no cell phones, but the telegraph was used until the invention of the landline in 1876. It wasn't until the 1870s that electric cars even became practical. Most crimes are committed against someone who knew their assailant. In the 1800s, detectives had an 85% chance of solving a murder if they found the victim's address book. If the murder was random, then it was all based on luck. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. We're your hosts. I'm Melissa. And I'm Jeff. Today's episode is our monthly Maniac Murderer episode. During these episodes, we pull a card from our serial killer deck to let the universe choose who our next Maniac Murderer will be. Our April 1st episode featured Andre Chikatilo, the Butcher of Rostov. Today's episode will be on Herman Mudgett better known as H.H. Holmes. Stick around to the end of our episode to find out which maniac murderer we will be featuring next month. H.H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett. Herman was born into a well-off family on May 16, 1861 in New Hampshire. His parents, Levi and Theodate Mudgett, were devout Methodists with five children. Herman was born third in the birth order. His father came from a farming family, and he would make a living farming, trading, and painting houses. Herman was known to be very intelligent from a young age. Herman would often spend his time reading Edgar Allan Poe and inventing things. Always expressing an interest in medicine, some believe that Herman may have practiced surgery on animals and even dissected the dead ones. It's thought that he would trap the animals— starting with small animals like lizards and snakes and moving up gradually to rabbits and even dogs. Always the first sign of a future serial killer. Some believe Herman was bullied because of his high intelligence and odd curiosities. One day, the boys at school found out that Herman feared the doctor's office. In classic cruel school children manner, the boys drug him into the office, struggling and shrieking. Shoving the doctor's skeleton up to him, putting the hands of the skeleton on Herman's face. Herman would later say that this showed him he shouldn't be afraid and was what prompted his interest in medicine. You don't see that anymore at the doctor's office, the skeleton in the corner. You really don't. They should bring that back. It's like only in like high schools and like the... <laughs> Are they, is it even there anymore? I don't know. It was when I went. I mean, that was a really, really long time ago. Like now the skeleton probably has to like identify as I'm something old. else. Yeah. Like it identifies as a learning tool, not a skeleton. Herman said, quote, It was a wicked and dangerous thing to do to a child of tender years and health, but it proved an heroic method of treatment destined ultimately to cure me of my fears and to inculcate in me, first, a strong feeling of curiosity and, later, a desire to learn, which resulted years afterward in my adopting medicine as a profession. It's definitely something you don't see often, like the bullying led to some form of great learning or... Yeah, I'm not sure they're 
prank really was all that terrifying. <laughs> I did read that he was five when this happened, so okay, I, that that adds a little bit more credence to it, I guess. But it same, didn't sound that bad. At the same time, I didn't like put that in here because. It seems so young to remember something like that, but I suppose... I mean, I remember things from kindergarten. Same here. I mean, and they're just little bits and pieces, but... That's probably one that would stick with you, though. Yeah. When Herman was 11, he was exploring an abandoned house with his best friend, Tom. When Tom fell off the landing, unfortunately, to his death, at the time, no one blamed Herman. It was seen as a tragic accident, It must have been a very traumatizing event to watch your best friend fall to his death at age 11. But later, people would look back and wonder if this was a tragic accident or if it was Herman's first murder. Yeah, that's a stretch. There are children that murder even at an age like that. Look at the podcast that we did on James Bulger and, you know, he was murdered by Venables and Thompson Mm -hmm. And they were only around, I think it. I think they were around age 11. Yeah, I think they were too. Yeah, I almost forgot about that horrible, horrible podcast that we did. Yeah, so I mean, it could have it could have went either way, right? Like either seeing the death was just so traumatizing. I think that that probably led to some of his problem problems later in life. Or, you know, it could have just been the beginning of the evilness within him. Hmm. There's also speculation that Herman's Methodist parents were not just strict Methodists, but strict on their children. It's been said that the parents possibly used like long periods of isolation and even like food restriction to punish the children and would lock them in the attic. And to quiet them, their father would hold a kerosene rag to their nose But there doesn't seem to be any real evidence of this abuse. And Herman himself wrote, quote, I was well trained by loving and religious parents. I know. And any deviations in my afterlife from the straight and narrow way of rectitude are not attributable in any way to a tender mother's prayers or a father's control emphasized when necessary by the liberal use of the rod wielded by no sparing hand. Well, he sure does wax intellectual, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) I kind of like it. I totally feel, though, that, I mean, he's saying, oh, yeah, it's not that fault, but, yeah, they they beat me real good, you know? I mean... Yeah, I don't think that was really uncommon, though. I mean, the the kerosene rag thing is questionable, so I'm not sure how... What's that do? (laughs) To be honest, I don't know what kerosene even smells like. It said to quiet them. I mean, I'm not exactly (laughs) sure. I would assume it would either knock them out or just like made them super calm. I mean. Yeah, see, I don't think it would do either. I mean, if it did knock you out, it definitely would not make me calm. Oh, (laughs) you know, I mean, I might shut up just to get it away from my nose. I I guess, but wow. Can't be good for you. No. Herman graduated from Philip Exeter Academy at the age of 16. This school is still in New Hampshire today. It's one of the oldest secondary schools in the U.S., and they are a highly selective boarding school. The average class size today is 12 students, and when you go to their website, you are met with messages that say things like, begin the journey of a lifetime and choose your path to excellence. I was immediately impressed. So there wasn't any mention of Mr. Mudgett on the website? There wasn't. I wonder if they I wonder if they try to like hide it or like 
Oh, I'm sure. In 1877, Herman would start dating Clara Loverling. Clara was an old-fashioned girl. I mean, old-fashioned was the fashion in the 1800s. Clara wouldn't have sex before marriage, and Herman was persistent. So she married him a year later, eloping on July 4th, 1878. Clara got pregnant about a year after being married, and they had one son together in 1880, Robert Loverling Mudgett. Herman was taking teaching jobs to make ends meet. He was living in Gilmanton while Clara stayed with his parents when he decided he would go for it and become a doctor. He enrolled in the University of Vermont, but he left the school, and the only reason I could really find was that he was just dissatisfied with it. Herman finished his schooling at the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine, which took him two years. He was enrolled from 1882 to 1884. Herman worked at the anatomy lab here, and later in life would state that he stole corpses and used them for insurance fraud. It's also thought that he may have experimented on the bodies as well. So insurance fraud is in like life insurance fraud? Yeah, I couldn't really like get like how he accomplished this, but I think <laughs> that he like, I don't know, he was just a fraudster. Like he was just talking people into like putting them like him on their policies and stuff like that, I assume. And then he's just presenting a dead body like, oh, this person died. <laughs> I mean, it you know, it's time like, for a payout. That's like the, the the top of the list for fraud. <laughs> You're not just like trying to like, oh, well, you know, the car burned down or like something like, yep, dead. Right. Here's the corpse. <laughs> I got it right here. I wonder if his picture is still up at the University of Michigan Hospital. Because they had this, like, uh, corridor where all the graduating classes, like, they're at a school, like, where they take, like, a group photo, you know? Right, right. And uh, I used to work there, and I remember walking through it, or walking past them all. And you just kind of glance as you're going through, and, you know, they go, you know, like, descending in years as you get closer to where the old medical school was. And uh, I remember I saw one, and I looked, and I kind of glanced again, and it was, uh, I think it was 1968, maybe? Uh, somewhere around there, it was, like, Jack Kevorkian. Uh, Dr. Death. Right. So Herman Mudgett should definitely be in those photos somewhere. Yeah, so I don't remember if they go back that far. I mean, it's a long hallway, but I don't remember. I, I, I think they do, though, because it's open to the public, too. Like, we could go look. Well, and I think that they were, like, so into taking pictures, like, way back in the day with those big old, like, black cameras with, like, didn't they have, like, a cloth covering the front of it? They would, like, pick it up. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like there were old, I mean, it's been a long time since I was there, but I feel like there were other ones. But then you'd have to go to, like, the engineering school if you wanted to see the Unabomber in his graduating class. Yeah, like, the camera was the big thing. I bet they are there. We should definitely go look. Clara left Herman before he graduated U of M. It's been said that he was abusive toward her. She took their son and moved back to New Hampshire. And since little Robert grew up to be a certified public accountant and city manager of Orlando, Florida, it looks like Clara made the wise decision. Now that Herman could practice medicine, he needed to find a place to do it. Herman moved to Moore's Folk, New York, where he took another teaching position. People started noticing strange things about Herman, and when he was seen with a young boy who then disappeared, rumors flew that Herman had something to do with it. Herman gave them a story about the boy going home to Massachusetts and basically fled town. Herman traveled around a bit and ended up in Philadelphia. 
He took a job at a drugstore there, but a boy died after taking medicine purchased at the pharmacy he worked at. He denied any involvement in the boy's death, but quickly packed his things and moved again. I love how that just is how you take care of that. Well, yeah, in the 1800s. (laughs) I mean, you know. Like, hey, I think you murdered that boy. Oh, yeah? I'm out of here. (laughs) And then nothing ever happens. That's crazy. It really is. And they never know if he really murdered these two children or not. But it's so suspicious that Herman just, he lived in two different states. Two boys go missing that are directly connected to him. And then he's like, I mean, he had to have. He's like, the heat is on. We got to move. Herman then traveled around a bit again, not probably knowing where to go directly after, you know, he's accused of this boy's disappearance. Again. Again. And he possibly visited Clara and Robert. He ultimately ended up in Chicago, where he would change his name, not suspiciously at all, (laughs) to Herman Henry Holmes. This is where he would marry Murda Belknap. Even though he had not divorced Clara... And to skip ahead just for a moment, he would also marry Georgiana Yoke in Texas in 1894 without divorcing either Clara or Murda. Boy, record keeping has really come a long way. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Right. You can't get married. You're already married. It says right here on the computer. (laughs) Yeah, didn't have that Herman's like, no, I'm not married. (laughs) No worries there. It's said that he chose the last name Holmes because of Sherlock Holmes. Um, But I feel that this could be a bit off because I read in every source that he changed his name in 1886. And Sherlock Holmes made his book debut in Conan Doyle's A Study of Scarlet in 1887. In Chicago, he took a job at a drugstore and must have done well because he purchased it from the owners. In many movies and books about Holmes, they make it seem like he killed the owners and took over the drugstore, but that wasn't actually true. They lived long lives in the area. He really actually purchased the drugstore. <laughs> Such a better story, though, if he killed him and buried him underneath it or something. I'm going to make a correction because Jeff called me out a minute ago. He thinks that it's not Conan Doyle that wrote the Sherlock Holmes books. It's... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Apparently he's been knighted by the Queen of England. (laughs) So I think. I could be completely wrong on this. We're going to trust him. At least I'm going to trust him. Because the H.H. Holmes story was so many years ago, it seems that so much of it has become an exaggeration. A a tall tale, if you will. So many things cannot be proven about the H.H. Holmes story. But one thing that we do know is that H.H. Holmes was handsome in his day and had no trouble seducing women, and that he built a murder castle. Well, we don't really know if it was a murder castle, but a castle nonetheless, and it was a castle with many secrets. When you say built, did he like have it constructed? He did. Like from the ground up? He did. So definitely a murder castle. Definitely. Is it still around? I mean, we can't prove that, but I think definitely. It is not, but Mm. we will get to that. The stories say that H.H. Holmes murdered 200 people, the majority being during the World's Fair in Chicago, as he was constructing his murder castle on a large plot of land across the street from the drugstore 
knowing that he could profit from the large amount of people that the World's Fair would bring in. That seems like an odd setting. Like, I picture, like, a street with this small drugstore on one side of it and then this giant castle, like, directly across from it. It just looks weird. Like, I kind of pictured that, too. <laughs> you don't see a lot of drugstores near castles, I guess. Maybe that's why. I don't know that that drugstore is still there today because... Well, I'll just keep going. As the stories go, the H.H. Holmes murder castle was three stories high. He lived there. The top floor was never finished, but was being turned into a hotel. It did end up like partially complete. And there was retail space on the ground floor and even a drugstore. So I'm assuming oh, he, just he moved, moved it into, the drugstore right. into the castle. What a smart thinker. The third floor hotel's construction was one that allowed him to easily torture and murder his patrons, throwing their bodies down chutes that he had cleverly built into the wall of each room leading to the basement, where dissection tables and vats of lye sat in wait. Wow. There were hinged walls and secret hallways. It was a vast, disorienting maze of hallways, windowless rooms, Doors that opened to brick walls and staircases that led nowhere. That's so awesome. The stories say that there were gas jets in the walls, a large kiln in the basement for burning bodies, and a large vault modeled after a bank vault. Wait, what are the gas jets for? I think to gas people. He's gassing people? That's what happened in like James Bond movies. The stories say that many women would disappear while at the H.H. Holmes murder castle. He didn't call it that, did he? I think he called it the World's Fair Hotel. Okay. Because <laughs> murder castle just doesn't bring him in. It's, it's my favorite name, though. It's what I'm going to call it. Two women that disappeared being his mistress, Julia Smith, and her daughter, Pearl, who mysteriously vanished on Christmas Day. When asked about her... H.H. Holmes claimed that she had died during a botched abortion. Others included Emmeline Sigrande and Minnie Williams, who was a movie star that had signed over her property in Texas to Holmes. Minnie and Holmes had quite the relationship, even renting an apartment together. Minnie's sister came to visit, and her sister ended up writing a letter back home saying that she would be traveling to Europe. And the women were never seen again. Yeah, I kind of doubt that she actually gave him the land in Texas, too. Yeah, I feel like that was probably fraudulent. I think that because of their relationship, she may have been, like, aware of his fraudulence and was, like, kind of into it. I think that hmm. they had, like, a plan together, actually. Oh. Just, just the impression that I get. Holmes' methods of killing are said to have been exposure to gas overdoses of chloroform, trapping people in the vault until they suffocated, starvation, and burning people alive. If you're an American Horror Story fan, you'll notice this story is a little similar to the season hotel. The Hotel Cortez was inspired by the murder castle built by H.H. Holmes, and the character James March, played by Evan Peterson, was inspired by H.H. Holmes. Well, he really stepped his game up once he got the hotel kicking. People think that he stepped up his game, but they don't know that he actually ever murdered anyone in this castle. Wait, what? They don't. How did... I assume you're going to explain? 
No one has ever proved that H.H. Holmes actually killed anyone in this castle. The only wrongdoing that authorities found when they searched the castle was furniture and other goods that Holmes had hidden to swindle people out of money. So I read this and I'm thinking, you know, it could be, right? I mean, like fraudulent people, I mean, you know, they hide things. Like that makes sense, right? Like hinged walls, hidden hallways. It seems excessive. The vaults. For furniture. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? I mean, and then, so I also read that having like a shoe in every room, like on a third floor of like a hotel would not be odd at all during that time. Because it would be like a laundry thing. Yeah, so it depends on how big the chute is. I guess it was pretty big. (laughs) So laundry doesn't need like a a three foot wide chute. So, yeah, I mean, I was reading that and I thought, you know, that could be. But then I'm like, like looking into it more and more. And I mean, nobody can prove that he murdered anybody in this castle. Nobody can prove that he murdered that boy when he was 11. Nobody can prove that those two boys that were connected to him went missing. It's just too much. Like, so many people just go missing in his presence. You know? And, like, why do you need, like, maybe I could see three hidden rooms for, like, furniture. But, like, you need to, like, actually build, like, a maze of hallways. Like, a disorienting maze. As if you wanted people to get lost. Okay, well, I would definitely do this. I would definitely build a giant place with corridors and hidden rooms and I mean, secret if you passageways. Did, people will come. But I had no I have if no intention of murdering it, anyone there. People will come cuz like people love to see stuff like that. Like I would I want to go to the Winchester Mystery House. Mm-hmm. So bad. Cuz they do tours. I, I yeah. yeah it's the same type of thing. I mean, it's, it is it is the same but it's a little bit different too. I the, I think that lady was just crazy. Well, right, because, like, they didn't kill people there. <laughs> right. Like, there was no, like, actual intention behind the construction, like, other than just having construction happening. Well, right. She felt that it calmed the spirits of the people that the rifles that they produced had killed because she thought they were, like, after her. I want to go. All right, well, let's go. Back to Holmes. <laughs> Holmes met Benjamin Pitzel during his time in Chicago as well. Benjamin would become Holmes' right-hand man. They would collaborate together to commit fraud. Benjamin is referred to often as Holmes' pet, his creature. After the World's Fair ended, people started catching on to H.H. Holmes' fraudulent ways. Insurance investigators were starting to investigate. He fled the city of Chicago. He went to Texas to the land that Minnie Williams had signed over to him. It wasn't long before an unknown arsonist set the Chicago Murder Hotel aflame. Oh, no. It was rebuilt as a post office. That sucks. While in Texas, he continued to swindle people out of money, and it caught up with him. He was arrested in 1894. Holmes did not learn his lesson while in prison. It was while he was there that he started devising a plan to fake his own death talking to other inmates to get connections to people who could help him recover the insurance money on himself. That's got to be tough. Some sources say that an inmate tipped off authorities, and others said that the insurance company was suspicious and wouldn't pay when the plan was carried out. Either way, this scheme didn't work out for Holmes. 
But like every determined criminal, Holmes was not ready yet to throw in the towel. He convinced Benjamin Pitzel to fake his own death instead in Philadelphia. They concocted a plan that included Pitzel's wife. She would collect the insurance money and split it with Holmes. Holmes would bring in a cadaver that matched Pitzel's profile and they would fake his death in a lab explosion. But something must have gone astray or Holmes was just craving another murder because instead he killed Pitzel. (laughs) What? Set him on fire using benzene as an accelerant. And somehow, lying to Pitzel's wife, saying that Pitzel was alive and hiding in London, Holmes got the insurance money and got Pitzel's wife to allow him to take three of her five children. Holmes would put her two daughters in the trunk of a car, drilling a hole in it and filled the trunk with gas to kill them. He buried their bodies at his Toronto rental home in the cellar. Authorities found the bodies of the girls and stated that the deeper they dug, the worse the stench became. They then visited a cottage that Holmes had rented in Indianapolis, where they found the remains of the Pitzel boy. Holmes had gotten drugs from a local pharmacy and used them to kill the boy. And then he chopped up the body of the boy with knives before burning it. They found the boy's teeth and bone bits in the chimney of the cottage. Holmes's third wife was still with him at this time, and she claimed to know nothing. That is a crazy turn of events. So... I mean, that's so confusing at first. It's like, all right, so we're going to fake your death. And then he kills him. (laughs) So obviously it worked, kind of, because he got the money. And then tells the wife he's in, like, man, that's nuts. I know. And then he kills the poor daughters for what? Yeah, for kicks, I guess. For kicks. And the boy. And, I mean, he must have done it separately unless he just, like, traveled with the boy's dead body. What the hell? And so these three things right here, like, he got drugs from the local pharmacy So, like, that was one of the first boys that went missing, you know, was a boy that had had drugs from his pharmacy. So, I feel like that means he definitely probably killed that boy. And then chopping somebody up with knives. With knives. Like, imagine that. (laughs) No. (laughs) Like, not that anybody wants to imagine it, but like a hacksaw, chainsaw. Like, I can see I can see how it can be done. I couldn't do it. Yeah, I'm not sure the serrated edge was a thing back in the 1800s. Like you said, just go to start oh, hacking away. I didn't think about that. Right. That'd be making it a lot harder. But like he just, like, he wouldn't just purchase like butcher knives and just, it was just butcher knives. Man, he really went off on that family. So when the wife just like knew nothing about it, it was his third wife and... What, she was just like along for the ride and what like they just had these children with them and she was just like oh it's okay like we just have these children and oh the children just like they're gone oh they like to it's hang out fine. in the trunk they like the trunk yeah yeah I don't know how she would be completely oblivious to it I mean especially like I mean he's renting this place I mean I, they're probably both there right I yeah mean, like oh in the cottage honey it really smells like burnt <laughs> flesh like what is everything okay? And he's like, oh, it's fine. She's like, okay. 
I'll go shopping again until the smell clears. That's crazy. Holmes was arrested in Boston on 11-17-1884, apparently on an outstanding warrant from Texas for horse theft. Really? All these things that he's... Really? Knocking over wine glasses, arresting horses. Yeah, just sorry about my glass, guys. But yeah, so yeah, that's what they arrested him for was horse theft. But they had found the bodies of the children and Holmes was charged and convicted of the murders of Benjamin Pitzel and the children. You know, it kind of makes sense. I imagine, I bet that in Texas in the 1800s, they took horse theft very Super serious. <laughs> Like it's they like, probably had teams it of people, a lot. yeah, and they like were hunting like people down about it, like posters of guys that it's were like so somebody so... stealing your car. <laughs> it's like somebody stealing your car, but way more personal because your horse is also your friend, <laughs> right? Like if you rode you get your to know your horse, if you rode your dog around. Your horse like loves you. It'll like come to you. I assume. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know nothing about horses. Yeah, I don't like horses really. Oh, I think they're so great. I'm oh. terrified one's going to kick me, though. You know, it's actually kind of funny that we bring this up because I believe Sherlock Holmes in the movie, the Robert Downey Jr. Steals a horse? No, he refuses to ride a horse because he says they are dangerous on both ends and crafty in the middle. Oh. <laughs> and I completely agree. At first, Holmes denied any involvement in the murders and claimed that he was only a fraudster. I'm just a fraudster. But eventually he confessed to 27 murders and six attempted murders. But strangely, he confessed to murdering people that were just oddly still alive. Maybe his murder castle wasn't as effective as he thought. Holmes gave different accounts of many different accounts of what he had done. He seemed to revel in the attention he was given and actually co-authored a book about himself with J.D. Crichton. Mm-hmm. No other murders aside from the Pitzels could be proven. It's realistically suspected that he killed nine people, but some people believe that he killed about 200. Yeah, that's a big discrepancy. It really is. I think he killed more than nine people. I mean, just like in my research and stuff, I, I think it was more than nine. I mean, I think I listed off just like more than nine in this. Yeah, I mean, as we stated earlier, the record keeping back then wasn't all that great. I mean, they couldn't be proven, but too many people were just going missing around this man. And he was too much of a liar and just he was a shady, shady man. Known as the devil in the White City, Holmes was hanged for his crimes on May 7th, 1896 at Philadelphia County Prison. He asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned that grave robbers would steal his body. And they just honor that? <laughs> That's just, like, you mean, can request everything did. you want. But. They did. And I was like, I feel like I feel like he thought robbers were going to steal his body because he would have stolen. Oh, right. The cadavers. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, that seems awfully expensive. To bury someone. I thought that too. I thought there's no way they did that. And they were like, yeah, we did that. (laughs) To the convicted murderer. Right. After we hung him. (laughs) After he, I don't know, gassed those girls in the trunk of the car. We'll honor his wishes. That seems odd that they would honor that. He did 
get a little bit of what he deserved, though, because his neck did not snap when he was hung. It took 15 minutes for him to stop twitching and 20 minutes for him to slowly strangle to death. That's a bummer. I mean, not really. I'm thinking of it as the mother of those children. (laughs) It would be a bummer for him. Yeah, definitely. In 2017, Holmes's body was exhumed for testing because there was suspicion that he had actually faked or escaped his own execution. But it was his body in the grave. And because it was encased in cement, his body had not decomposed normally. His mustache and clothes were still perfectly preserved. They identified him using dental records and reburied him. I wonder if they re-cemented him. I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. You he know, whatever they deserve it. I wonder. So when they dug him up, I wonder if like, God damn it, they cemented him. <laughs> this is gonna really be hard to do. That does seem like a bummer. Like I wonder if it was like a cement coffin with like his coffin inside, where like the top came off, or if it was just like. So just I first cement, pictured like it a like a big cement. Yeah, I first pictured like they just poured cement over his coffin. But that could be not correct. I don't know. You should have just poured cement like over his body. But then nobody would ever know if he was in there or not, I guess. And people would be still wondering. I was amazed that that was 2017. Yeah, right? Four years ago. Yeah. It was only Hmm. four years ago that they exhumed him. Yeah, so like 120-some years later. They're still wondering if he's in there, even though if he is or not, he's dead. He's dead Hmm. somewhere. I wonder how that got started. Like, yeah, he faked it. Yeah, such a fraudster. Right. And so now it's time for Jeff to pull a card. I'm going to try to do a drum roll. Sorry, I'll stop. Go ahead and read that card for everyone, Jeff. Earl Nelson, the gorilla killer. Age at first kill, 28. Years undiscovered, three. Number of victims, 22 or more. Born May 12th, 1897. Maniac Factor of 3, Nelson had several escapes from the Napa State Mental Hospital, and he started his killing spree in 1926. His victims were mostly landladies whom he would approach on the premise of renting a room carrying a Bible to gain trust. I'm curious as to why he's the gorilla killer. We're going to have to find that out. Yeah, I've never heard of this. He looks kind of gorilla-ish. And beat up yeah he does look kind of beat up his hair is not disheveled definitely disheveled (laughs) his ears are kind of big maybe that's the gorilla thing do girls have big ears i don't know you know i don't i don't know either (laughs) i'd have to look at a picture he kind of looks a little like like brutish i guess maybe i don't know i guess we'll find out so join us on june 1st to hear that episode i can't believe i'm saying the words june 1st it's going so fast i couldn't believe it was may 1st today i was like what No, I kept putting April on everything. Like, April just seems like non-existent to me. It just, like, went by in a flash. But that is all that we have for you today. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Evil people are everywhere. Tell somebody you love them. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a YouTube channel. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or contributions, you can email us at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, 
please consider giving us an Apple Podcast five-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, then you can go tell it to your diary. Or you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.